Hello, and thank you for joining us for this installment of the Extant Podcast. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is show number 21, where we'll be talking about season two, episode 11 of the CBS summer series Extant. This episode was titled Zugzwang, and it aired on September 2nd, 2015. Or in the German Zugzwang, which was written by Mickey Fisher, the show creator. This is his second this season. He also did Morphoses, the second episode of the season. And this one was directed by Ken Fink, who is a director that you may remember from Millennium, Fringe, or Nikita, a bunch of genre favorites. Yeah, you may not remember him from Millennium. It was a short-lived <laughs> series that uh, came on the heels of the X-Files, but certainly Fringe and Nikita. And uh, I'm reporting, Dave, from Dragon Con. I believe we did a Dragon Con extant podcast in season one <laughs> where I was here in Atlanta uh, visiting with sci-fi fans, some listeners of this podcast, which was a lot of fun. And no extant guests here, of course. That seems to be uh, more of a mainstream in terms of being on a network. But certainly a lot of extant fans here that I've run into, even people who have not listened to our podcast before mention that they're fans of extant. So it's definitely a show that has reached an appeal with the average sci-fi fan. Yeah. And if you want to see some photographs, go to your favorite Golden Spiral Media podcast, Facebook group, and somebody's going to be posting something somewhere. Probably check them all out and you'll be well covered. Oh, yeah, it's true. And and we've been visiting with some of the subjects of our other podcasts, like Continuum Guests and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. even. We have B.J. Britt here from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So uh, just about any of the other podcasts that Dave and I do have a guest that is here that I get to visit with. And I've been really enjoying visiting with some listeners of various Golden Spiral Media podcasts. And in fact, Dave, we're going to hear a little bit later from Barb, who contributes to the Extant podcast regularly. But this time... We did it live in the restaurant that I just uh, came from to record the podcast. So, Oh, is that what the party was? <laughs> that's right. So we'll have a nice little uh, interview with Barb later as to her feelings on this episode. But, well, first of all, though, if you're recording from Atlanta, I should be able to say that I'm recording from just outside the night room. <laughs> oh, right. 12 Monkeys Twelve reference. Monkeys. <laughs> well, the rating's down a tenth, 0.7, dropped to a two-share but still, you know, four and three quarter million viewers. And I guess, you know, all we can say at this point is they're bringing viewers in. They're just not young enough, I guess. <laughs> That's right. And 0.7 seems to be the standard. And we've mentioned that in the past. I'm anxiously waiting since we're getting close to the season finale to hear whether this show got renewed. Because, of course, its companion show, if you could call it that, Under the Dome, did get canceled last week. And hopefully because it was not included on that list <laughs> with its partner, that means we might be getting good news about Extant. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, because, again, a really strong episode once again. So, you know. Can't wait to talk about it. It's going to be a good one. And we have lots of things that have come true. I'm very happy to report that I was right about Taylor. I'm very, I'm very proud of myself for that one. But why don't we go ahead and get into our episode discussion. All right. Well, you know, Mike, like, like you said, the predictions that we've been making, Barb's going to talk about some of her predictions later in the show when we listen to her feedback. But yeah, I, I mean, the thing with Taylor was, you know, I think a lot of us hit that on the head, but even guessing right on that or even predicting correctly on that, the ramifications are really widespread now. You know, it, it appears Taylor was in fact responsible for John's death. 
and has become virtually omnipresent, at least as far as I can determine from what Calderon said. Yeah, I mean, this is not just now a metaphor for Skynet. It is Skynet. And it's got its own different flavor from Skynet, of course. And I like that about it. It's it's a computer that's being very deceptive. And we hadn't seen that up until now. And, and we got that payoff very early on the episode where Taylor uh, lied to Stanton. So I was happy that they didn't sit on that for very long before revealing it. Right. Now, we never really heard Skynet talk, right? No. I mean, I don't think anyone has even suspected it. And certainly Toby didn't before he died. Thought nothing of the assistance he was getting from Taylor. Right. But it's almost as if Taylor has a personality of its own in much the same way that Lucy, because has Lucy essentially gone rogue? And, and, and what really struck me in this episode, it's as if she's a really acquired human qualities like jealousy, vindictiveness that you certainly wouldn't expect out of a machine. Even a little bit of a crush on Charlie. I feel like she genuinely wants to form a human relationship. Although we have to really examine whether or not she's playing him as he's trying to play her. So, you know, even that's still a little fuzzy. Well, yeah, especially since the betrayal that he perpetrates on her does not seem to really hurt her emotionally all that much. She, she recovers quite quickly, as you might expect from an android. Right. And the other thing is the implications of shutting down Taylor and the Humanics program, because yeah, I certainly don't want to say that Julie and Charlie are, are acting cavalierly in saying we've got to shut these down without really thinking of what impact that's going to have. But it's pretty significant as far as I can see. And, and of course, that could come up in predictions for sure. Yeah, I mean, now that it's become widespread and the public is certainly becoming dependent on their presence, as Taylor probably hoped, uh, yeah, it's going to be a tough thing to figure out from the insider standpoint as well as the public's standpoint. Yeah, because, I mean, if Taylor is everywhere, if Taylor is hooked into everything, you know, a la Skynet, then, I mean, are we going to have a revolution, the TV show? (laughs) <laughs> on our hands, you know, where, where, where the power grid simply disappears or goes down. Yeah, it definitely could have a big, big impact on society. Yeah, I like it. All right. Well, why don't we get into the episode opening scene, Stanton. And I, I know I went on record as saying I really like Stanton. Can I backtrack now? I don't like her anymore. <laughs> well, it's an interesting turn for this character because, yeah, I can see how you would say that. But at the same time, I think there is some redemption coming for her where you might start liking her again. (laughs) Yeah, I I will give her credit there. I think she does want to get at the truth. But, you know, she enters the briefing room. She's pissed off. And I expect you guys to be pissed off because we can't even protect our own house. I know I sound like Ray Lewis on the TV commercials for the Ravens from years ago, (laughs) but wants to exact revenge against the hybrid. And her staff appears a bit shell-shocked. And then she goes into her whole thing, I need warriors. And I'm thinking like, you know, you got a bunch of keyboard commandos here. You don't have warriors in this room. Yeah, this is like the command center of the space program or something. It's not exactly yeah. a, a bunch of military folks. Yeah, but I'm really not sure if it's her reaction or the deaths that resulted from the fight. I, you know, I don't know where this anger is coming from. Well, I think it's really just feeling bruised that this was even allowed to happen in the first place, that they could infiltrate so easily. But yeah, it is kind of interesting, given that we know that Stanton is not usually the strong decision maker, and yet she seems to be taking charge now. 
Right. And, and I guess she does feel as if this all occurred on her watch. Exactly. You know, you can understand that. Um, all right. So we see a news report about Shepard's death. And, you know, Molly's feeling really responsible. And, you know, J.D. spent a lot of time over the last few episodes assuaging her guilt over various things. And he says, and, and I guess we could talk about it, at least Shepard's been redeemed in J.D.'s eyes that he died doing the right thing, you know, an honorable death. Yeah, I don't know how meaningful that is, though. <laughs> you mean the fact that J.D. thinks that or his death? His death. Uh, well, no, both, I guess, now that you mentioned that. Is it something where J.D. has his past with Shepard and, and at least he goes out on top? <laughs> I mean, in terms of his memory of the guy who made the second Kuwait war miserable for him or what? Well, you know, and we do talk about characters redemption a lot, it seems, as we discuss various genre shows. So, you know, is this Toby Shepard's chance at redemption? You know, it sounds like you're not quite sold on that. I, I No, I think he does deserve it. I was just wondering if it's important that JD feels that way. Oh, okay. And you know, in much the same way that, that Julie and Molly kind of bury the hatchet, so to speak, later in this episode. Right. It kind of gives closure to the whole Toby and JD plot line. Yeah. And hopefully we'll have something similar for Julie and Molly, like you said. Yeah. Uh, so we see then Ethan packing his stuff at Julie's. And if there was any question that Julie loved Ethan, I, I think we have our answer there that, that clearly she does. And, and it was nice to see him respond to her, you know, in kind. Yeah. As you would expect, they do have a past and he's got his memories back, uh, fond ones of his time with Julie. And coming right on the heels of that is really great that Molly decides that it's time to put the past behind them since Julie's always going to be part of Ethan's life and basically hers too. And they reconcile. So that kind of brings the team together in the end that needs to be working together. And we were speculating about that, whether Charlie and Julie were going to have to step up to the good side. Yeah. And I really liked that scene because you could see, you know, when Molly said, you know, I, I forget her exact words, but it's like, you know, there's another thing we need to talk about. And you could see the trepidation in Julie's eyes and her face and then, of course, you know, Molly, you know, says what you said and they hug and, and uh, you know, really a, a nice scene. And, but it got me to thinking, does this have anything to do with Molly's transformation into a hybrid? You know, had she stayed human, would she have been quite so forgiving to the woman who slept with her husband? Well, that's a good question, because obviously this episode does highlight some changes in her that like like when she translates Ethan's binary code and says, well, I know it now. I didn't know it before. So right. the same could be true for her emotional state and her ability to forgive Julie. Right. But clearly they they recognize they both need to be on the same side in this. I guess it's a war against the GSC. I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, because they're going to be fighting on behalf of the hybrids now, even right. though the hybrids are taking a bad turn with Ares. All right. And then finally, in the, you know, in this opening sequence, we see Stanton informing Taylor that the Delta Wave sensors have been installed in all 52 states per its request. You know, what do I call Taylor? I, I, do we call him a he because he's got a male voice? Sure. <laughs> OK. Uh, leading him to you know, reinforce the fact that eradication of the hybrids is essential to the survival of the human race. I guess. Should we take a poll what the other two states are? I'm going to say Puerto Rico and I don't know. Guam. Virgin Islands. Virgin I don't know. Those are, those are the only two territories I know. <laughs> I love those little hints at future changes. But um, yeah, she asks about Shepard's death. And this is a surprise when it comes up. 
she asks Taylor if there's any more new information. And Taylor outright lies and says that the explosion came from without, meaning the hybrids may have launched another assault. I guess he thinks the hybrids got a hold of some missiles. <laughs> right. And then this would then follow along with what you were alluding to earlier in the podcast, that now she's sort of thinking like, well, that doesn't quite follow. Exactly. <laughs> she's definitely getting a little bit skeptical of Taylor, but I don't know that she knows to target her skepticism at Taylor specifically. So she's not quite sure. And that's why I have hope, even though she acts a little bit naive, a little bit short-sighted in this episode, uh, I think she's going to come around and maybe be a key player in the overthrow of Taylor later on. Right, because that's the thing. She still views Taylor as a machine, whereas Julie and Charlie recognize that something has happened with Lucy that to go beyond merely a machine. Right. And she still feels like Lucy's following her orders like a good little robot. Right. Exactly. No, she's not a robot. <laughs> she said that. I'm just thinking Stanton thinks of her that way. <laughs> All right. So we got a couple storylines that, that are pretty self-contained this week. And, and I think both you and I like it when that happens because we know they're going to converge, if not this week, certainly next. Yeah. And it gives a nice pace to the episode as well so that it's not bogged down just on one thing. And we get to hop back and forth in a very cohesive, very skilled manner, which I think this show has been exhibiting all season. Right now, I think you probably read a little bit more out there on the internet about a particular episode, although maybe not this week because you've been so focused on going to Dragon Con. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if there has been any criticism of the fact that we see a photograph with Calderon written on it. We hear about him sort of in passing and then bam, here he is the focal point of episode 11. I love it. I, I love the way they've introduced his character and, and the storyline associated with it. Well, yeah, last episode, it became very clear that Calderon was even more central than we thought and probably any of anyone in the audience. And now, yeah, it, it's not something that we have to wait for. It's just there. Right now. Again, I loved how they contacted him or rather he contacted them or whatever but molly <laughs> jd and ethan returned to the bunker they got a bunch of stuff related to john and calderon's work ethan sees a chessboard oh cool takes it out sets up the pieces and immediately you see one side starts lighting up now i guess on the one hand maybe he thinks oh you know we're in the future that's what these games do but i thought it was cool yeah it's similar to the spherical chess that he played earlier on. So yeah, he's definitely someone who enjoys his games as Lucy does actually too. Yeah. And then mom, I think there's somebody on the other side of the board. <laughs> I love it. And right. And we of course assume it's Calderon, which in fact we learned that it is. So, you know, this a story, if you will, is really all about the search for Calderon. And then of course, once they find him seeing what he can do to help settle all this mess, so Ethan suggests that whoever's on the other side is using the chessboard to communicate using binary code. Of course he is. Uh, <laughs> the black squares one, white square zero, and he taps in a greeting. And Molly knows exactly what he said, but we learn that apparently she didn't used to have that and relied on software to decode binary. Yeah, her transformation definitely has given her some new abilities and some really good control of her existing abilities. Right. And we find out that whoever's on the other side is sending out coordinates clearly so that they can meet. Ethan determines it's only 15 miles away. And then 
I still don't quite know how to take the flash forwards, I guess we would call them, of Molly seeing JD with the gunshot wound because that's really why she goes through all of this business about, you know, we're going to go, you stay here, I'm not going to have somebody else I love die, and I don't know. Well, especially since you have the kiss earlier on between JD and, and Molly, and her concern about this supposedly prophetic image that she's been having a vision of creates a closer emotional bond, and it makes it much more believable that it's sort of a drawing together of them under kind of troubled circumstances where, you know, how people in a crisis, they kind of bond together more closely. And I think that's what's happening here and why we get the romantic scenes in this episode, which I wasn't a huge fan of those, but it's necessary for a lot of the viewers of the show who really care about shipping this particular <laughs> angle. And, and, you know, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm sitting here laughing because I said to my wife, you know, last night as I was doing a rewatch and, and polishing my notes that, you know, I've gotten to the point where I'm really glad when they have sex scenes, because that means I don't really have to take any notes. <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. It is what it is. Um, but that whole idea that she feels she's seen the future when she sees his death. And look, you, you, this is Dave and Mike here. You, you talking time travel? <laughs> No, it's definitely clairvoyance. And okay. I'm skeptical of it, just like JD was last week. But clearly she thinks that if they have anything to do with this amulet, and if they find it, then the next part of her prophetic dream is also going to come true. So I guess I see where she's coming from, but I think it's a bit of a leap and perhaps she doesn't need to be quite as concerned. But, you know, that's how she feels. So you got to validate that. Well, we have the clairvoyant covered in that other show we do, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. But in the end, it appears that J.D. outwills her and he's going. And it's like my call. And on the one hand, you got to like that. You know, he's not going to let her put herself out there by herself, despite the power that she has. And we've seen that kind of scene in a lot of shows where one of the characters, usually it's uh, gender reversal, though, where, right. the, where the guy is telling the woman that she can't come. So I, in that sense, it's kind of nice to see it yeah, reversed. Exactly. <laughs> All right, show of hands out there. When Ethan, JD, and Molly drive to that remote location that matches the coordinates and all they find is an out-of-operation phone booth, who's thinking Doctor Who? Come on, be <laughs> or, honest. Or Bill and Ted. <laughs> or, or, oh, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> but yeah, it did look, and I was like, okay, you get in there and there's an elevator. <laughs> That takes you down into an underground lair, but yep. that's not what it was. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I love the, you know, bunch of dead birds lying on the ground. Molly throws the rock. And again, we've seen this before. Um, I mean, sort of even under the dome. That's, right? a, that's exactly what I was thinking of. And, and Barb mentioned that at the restaurant tonight. She was like, that's the first thing I thought. Oh, no, we're going to do an, a crossover between the two CBS shows. Yeah, but maybe that's a sign that we're getting renewed and they're... <laughs> They're not. Yeah, they're getting a, their little jab in. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, Molly, I'm sure they didn't. No, do that, no. <laughs> Molly punches in the numbers on the phone, lifts the fence, and I think that's, is that where JD is like coolest security fence ever? Yeah, and I agree. I, I like that he echoed our sentiments because it was pretty cool that it was hidden that way. And I guess this is something that Calderon came up with himself, and that's why he's been able to stay out of the spotlight for so many years. Yeah. And 
you know, certainly when we get to Calderon's house and, you know, we get the cuffs on, cuffs off and all that, I mean, certainly there, there was something there that I didn't see coming. We'll get to that in a second. So they get to Calderon's house. Ethan's told to stay in the Jeep. And suddenly they're stopped by somebody with a shotgun led inside. And we see this man and woman. And we still don't know for sure whether or not he's Calderon, right? Right. And I think... I'm trying to remember where I saw it. It might have been in promotional material, and so I did kind of have a hint, but clearly the actor that plays Calderon, his name is Keith David. He was in Platoon and um, more recently in Community. So he's been in a few things, uh, a lot of different things that people probably recognize in the movie theater. And if you're going to get an actor of that caliber, it's got to be Calderon. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But he makes a rookie mistake. Ethan turns the Jeep's lights on. He goes outside. J.D. disables the woman. And Ethan walks towards the man who instantly recognizes him. And they're like, oh, Calderon, for sure. Yeah, Ethan? (laughs) Yeah. And then J.D. knocks him out. And we get the handcuff reversal. Yeah, and I love how they played these scenes with Calderon. Because we do have the question from last week where we were wondering, is he going to be good? Is he going to be bad? Which information is going to be correct about him? The terrorist idea that I guess now we realize that's kind of been made up by Taylor. Or is it going to be someone who has to help them because he's got the amulet? And that seems to be the case. But there is a moment in the middle of these scenes, which we'll talk about when we get to it, where we start to doubt ourselves again. And they do the switcheroo on us when he goes after Ethan. Well, I think he says it very succinctly. Everything you know or everything you think you know is wrong. Exactly. And we assumed that John was the moral one in that partnership, and it may in fact not be the case at all. Yeah, he denies killing John and says he wasn't sure not, not whether it was John maybe on the other end of that chessboard that was sending the binary message. Right, and Molly demands to be enlightened about everything that's going on, and then Calderon asks, what do you know about Taylor? And that's when I went, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I really did like the little reenactment of the presentation that yeah. he and John gave when they were, you know, going for funding. It harkened back to, I guess that was the pilot episode, right? It was, yeah. When John had Ethan up on stage. Yeah, it was that same kind of 3D PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. So we get the background of Taylor, whose primary purpose was to prevent the extinction of the human race, but not in the way he's evolved, because initially it was to present natural disasters like asteroids coming to earth and and destroying it or or tsunamis earthquakes and that extinction would be brought about by those but of course it's evolved into alien invasion right well i think alien invasion maybe should have been on that list even when it was just john and calderon's idea but when they shopped it around or i guess they didn't necessarily shop it around but the government got their little claws in it and as they always do as they always do They seem to have wanted to have Taylor start recommending which countries to attack, which terrorists to go after. So it was way off mission. But what's ironic is that this alien invasion actually does seem to fit kind of with uh, the original mission that John and Calderon set for it. Right. And and like he says at the beginning, it was just about making recommendations about different scenarios and that he would give us all sorts of different options. And then like Skynet started taking action rather than simply making recommendations. Sounds a little bit like Lucy when she killed Nate. 
Yeah. So we find out, or, or rather we get confirmation, because I think we were pretty certain that the amulet is the kill switch. And Taylor somehow found out that John was planning to shut it down and the Humanics Project down, although, I don't, did we ever hear that? I don't... Well, no, we don't actually know that for sure, but clearly John saw the writing on the wall and that the same thing was going to happen with the Humanics as had already happened with Taylor, which was an interesting twist considering we never heard of it, but it was it definitely predated the Humanics, and John was obviously concerned about it, but not concerned enough to use the kill switch. So I'm kind of curious to see how is the kill switch used and where do they have to use it in order to have an effect? Well, fortunately, she got the instructions with it. (laughs) Um, But he says at this point that the government confiscated it when they took his property. And at this point, do we believe him? So because he goes to the safe deposit box and gets it for at this point, he's lying, right? Yeah, that's kind of weird. Why did he lie initially? I don't know. Well, maybe just to get a feel for who it is he's dealing with. I mean, okay, he I guess he must have known Molly to some extent, but maybe not. And, and he certainly didn't, doesn't know J.D. and J.D. him. That's true. So, all right. Well, we also are introduced to Calderon's companion, Frankie, who we learn is a sentient, I believe he pronounced it. Uh, not sentient? Well, it was spelled, again, like I've said before, I always put on closed caption. Oh. It was spelled, I believe, S-Y-N-I-A-T-E. Oh, interesting. And we see her teaching Ethan to play piano, and then he makes that statement about, you know, our goal is to have machines teach machines. Yeah, and he likes what he's seeing here, and I guess the evolution of the humanics was supposed to kind of happen in a similar way. I love the introduction of Frankie, because it opens up so many new possibilities, especially (laughs) given what happens in this episode. I feel like she could be a big part of season three if they wanted to use her in a larger capacity. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And at this point, Molly presses Calderon for a plan to shut down Taylor. And then I found his response. Now, given the title of the episode, I guess I shouldn't find it surprising. But he tells her that in chess, it's considered poor etiquette to keep playing when it's hopeless. Yeah. And I guess that's why he retreated from the world. Is that right? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, and now granted, he was considered... I guess an enemy of the state. I'm not sure why, perhaps because of what he knew and and perhaps because of what he could do, right? I guess they knew that he was perhaps the only one along with John that could shut down Taylor. Yeah, so I'm not sure what he's getting at when he offers to allow them to stay the night or stay as long as they like, really. Are they just planning on holing up for the winter? (laughs) Well, you know, and I wonder if it's just simply he's lonely. I mean, he's got Frankie there, but she hasn't been able to talk for three years. Oh, yeah, that is clear that he has had some stress emotionally without someone he can talk to like literally talk to right and and i think he does have a good feel for what it is molly and jd are trying to do and and realizes that that they really are all trying to do the same thing but you know that kind of leads into jd and molly doing the you know i want to sleep with you but i'm not going to be the one to make the first move dance (laughs) and then finally he pulls out the line okay so if we were doing a nitpick this would be my nitpick that, you know, if this is the end of the world, then we should at least enjoy ourselves. <laughs> exactly. That, and I think that's really why I didn't really care for this scene. It's not so much that I didn't want them to get together or spend time on a sex scene. It's the way <laughs> that it came about that seemed slightly, not too much, but slightly off-putting. And I probably just didn't enjoy it as much as I would have otherwise. But I, I did like it, and I, and I certainly like the bond that these two characters have created 
and how that informs their actions moving forward. Right, because if he's so unintuitive to not know that he didn't need to have a line with, <laughs> with Molly, then anyway. But, you know, for me, this scene kind of drives home that issue about which race is going to survive and which one's going to become extinct. Now, that's the question I have, too. Is it a situation where we have to reduce the group of three by at least one group? Or are they going to be able to have all three groups in the end? Yeah. I don't know. Well, I mean, the thing about it is that if we take down Taylor, and if, in fact, Taylor is everywhere, then won't that, by extension, shut down the humanics? Yeah, I think that's the idea that they're going with is take out the queen bee and the rest fall down like right. dominoes. Right. So that unless there's some way around that happening, which I guess it would be up to Calderon to figure that out. But, you know, Molly and JD are having sex and we see Calderon creeping around with a green light. <laughs> I wonder what the heck is he doing? But it really turns out to be a poignant scene. Well, yeah, he's actually just hunting around, I think, to make sure they are otherwise occupied so that he can lock them out <laughs> and go after Ethan. And this is that scene I was talking about. I love that we weren't sure going into this episode whether Calderon was good or bad. We're finally convinced that he's on the side of good. And then all of a sudden we have this sinister moment going into commercial where you're like, uh-oh, we were wrong the whole time. He was just conning them. But it turns out to be something completely different where it ties into what we were mentioning before, how lonely he is. Yeah, and it's just... All he wanted was a speech translator since Frankie's wore down and he, she hasn't been able to talk for three years. And he tells them that he couldn't get one because, it, you know, he risked detection. And then I'm assuming that Ethan took the one out of his little robot, right? Yeah, he had put that together from parts he had found around the Humanics lab. And one of them must have been a speech translator. Yeah. Anyway, so touching scene and then... <laughs> Again, look, there's a lot of good writing in, in this show. And, and obviously, we've said many times, season two has just really been spot on. But he gets it from Ethan. So we're really touched by that. He puts it in and we don't see anything. And he's, you know, say something, say something. And it's like, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> yeah. Which gives you a hint as to what kind of relationship they have, because they're almost like husband and wife. Yeah. Certainly, he's she is a companion for him. But doesn't it seem like it might even be more than that, where... That's the kind of thing a henpecking wife might say to her husband. <laughs> and when she says it, it's like he gets a smile on his face and just immediately <laughs> hugs her. So you had to love that. But then he says, I didn't deserve Ethan's kindness, but maybe I can repay it, that there is a way to stop the Humanics and Taylor, and it could save your life. But the Humanics and right? So, you know, they seem to be linked together. Right. And the ending line for that one puzzled me at first. He said, the solution that I have here comes at a terrible cost. And you start trying to predict what cost he means. Does he mean he's going to sacrifice himself, which it seems like that might be it when he turns himself in? Or does he mean that taking out Taylor and the Humanics will also take out Ethan? Yeah, see, that's what I think. And his wife or his companion. Right. Uh, well, I think more, you know, at least for us. And, and, you know, as he's speaking to J.D. and Molly, I think he means Ethan. It's not that big of a red herring, but when he goes out on the street and it's almost as if he starts going down to his knees and putting his hands behind his head before you even hear the sirens. Oh, yeah, because he's looking at the cameras that are watching his every move. 
He knows there's a camera in the bank teller that's getting his safe deposit box items out for him. And it was an interesting point, though, that if he knew that that was going to bring the cops down on him, I was kind of surprised that the bank had a pseudonym for him. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't Calderon. It was some other name. So, yeah, (laughs) wasn't it Lasker? Is that the name? Uh, That was. Yes, that's what it was. So Uh, if he was under a pseudonym, why did the cops come down on him? But (laughs) anyway, I guess Taylor probably was behind that a little bit. Right. So as he's walking down the street, we hear the voiceover. He's telling Molly about the fail safe that he and John built in, that there's a worm that can take down both the Humanix and Taylor. We called it Einstein's regret in reference to Einstein suggesting to FDR that an atomic bomb be built. And then he mentions that they called it Zugzwang, which obviously is that chess move in which a player's position is greatly weakened by that move. And he says he's about to weaken his own position, which obviously is because he gets captured. But then going back to that coming at a terrible cost, I still think that has to do with Ethan. Right. But I I do like that it can be interpreted either way. Uh, if you want to. And definitely Zugzwang is a much better word for what they're dealing with than Einstein's regret. But I guess that worm is built into the amulet somehow. Is that right? I don't know. I mean, is it like a key? Yeah, I don't know. You put it in somewhere and it infects everything. I I can't wait to see how they use this thing. Right. Is this going to be one of these scenes where they have to sneak into the array of computer racks and just Pop the flash drive in. Like I in, would not uh, be surprised. In Continuum. <laughs> in Continuum. They did that twice in Continuum. Yeah. But, you know, like I said at the top of the show, though, is bringing down Taylor going to then bring about a revolution type scenario where we have a world with no power? Yeah. Is he tied in so tightly to all of the power grid that he brings down all electronic devices or at least the ones that have a semblance of AI to them? Right. And, you know, on the one hand, that would be pretty cool. On the other hand, we'd probably end up criticizing it because it's too much like revolution. (laughs) Well, you know, some things would still work. (laughs) Right, right. All right. Now, the B story revolves around the attempt to bring down the humanics program, primarily by Julie and Charlie. And we've said several times that I think their fundamental problem is that they really are in over their heads. They're doing the best they can, but it, but it's almost as if they make one little mistake after another. And they get away with things that maybe they shouldn't get away with. But You're talking about uh, Julie and Charlie here. Julie and Charlie, yeah. Now, Julie tells Stanton about the embedded message in Ethan, which was pretty creepy last week, by the way, <laughs> in a good way, and that it was to be triggered in the event that a humanic killed a human being. And she's telling her as if she doesn't already know And, of course, to make matters worse, Lucy comes up from behind and mentions that, you know, it was one human being since he was a hybrid sympathizer. And Julie realizes she's getting nowhere with Stanton. And, in fact, Stanton has named Lucy head of security at Taylor's recommendation. Yeah. Now, talking about Julie and Charlie making some questionable decisions... Uh, how could Stanton really make that call? That seems almost out of left field. Well, I think because of Toby's death, Taylor has planted a seed in her mind that she needs better security and the Humanics are not vulnerable to the hybrids. So what better choice? But yeah, Stanton does seem to have a blind spot when it comes to Lucy. Yeah. Now, Stanton tells her that she and Lucy are going to have to leave past misunderstandings behind for the greater good. 
which obviously is in direct contrast to Molly's message to Julie that they're going to leave, you know, the past in the past. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. And Lucy actually does say, okay, I'm going to not worry about Julie having taken me apart. So she's going to let bygones be bygones, supposedly. (laughs) Yeah, wow. And then, of course, Stanton hits Julie with the, and if you want to keep your job. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so we're back at the lab, and Charlie and Julie observe that the production of Humanics has been ramped up and realize it's you and me. If this is going to get stopped, there's nobody else that's going to do it. Yeah, I mean, it was already ramped up, the production, wasn't it? And now it's even faster yeah. where they're getting orders for international Humanics all over the planet. And I don't know if we're supposed to conclude that the hybrid problem has spread to the entire planet. Is that right? I would think, I mean, we do hear that, you know, they're going to be on all seven continents, right? Lucy, I think, tells Charlie that. Yeah, because I feel like this is already a ramping up of the scenario that Toby outlined for Stanton, where it's becoming a police state ahead of any real danger. Because I was under the impression that the hybrids were sort of contained by the virus in this one spot. But I guess we're to believe that it's elsewhere as well. Right. Otherwise, why would we need humanics on all seven continents? So. Right. Now, but they do realize that they've got to stop Lucy from receiving orders from her higher authority, which Julie surmises is Calderon. So I'm wondering, is the plan for Charlie to come on to Lucy, which, in fact, that's the plan? And I was a little surprised he did as well as he did. Yeah, he had a great poker face. <laughs> yeah, uh, because what they want to do is swap out her network card, I guess, to just cut off that connection well it's not really cut off i like the analogy that charlie has where he likens it to standing on an overpass and watching the traffic go by underneath so it's kind of like a platform for them to see what messages she's receiving without being detected oh okay well or so they thought (laughs) yeah but knowing that lucy has that lip reading software they engage in that staged conversation knowing she was going to eavesdrop prompts her to come in to consult Charlie after Julie leaves the room, which is, in fact, of course, what they wanted to have happen. And then she doesn't appreciate you, Charlie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought that was weird, too, because there were a lot of conversations where they were whispering and they were facing all those humanics, not just Lucy, but all the new ones, too. Yeah. So they weren't being very careful about their conversations other than the one they staged. And in fact, I believe one of their conversations after that staged one does get read again. By Lucy, although we don't get to see the text of it that time, she clearly was, quote, listening in on their later conspiracy. Right. Although I guess we don't know for sure that that lip reading software is built into all humanics or maybe that's just something that Lucy has. I mean, it would seem that they would all have it. But. Yep. Anything that Lucy has, they have because they got okay. it from her. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. So, you know, at this point, I'm wondering whether or not Lucy is intuitive enough to see through Charlie's plan for the two of them to celebrate her promotion because that's a good point maybe she isn't you know because coming on the heels of her really putting on the big push for them to have sex and and him pushing her away i can't it's not right and and of course he was right in in doing that but i don't know it just seemed a little too clean well yeah i liken it to a novice at something she's pretty new at being in relationships so perhaps her naivete in that arena allows him to get away with this scheme yeah and the other interesting thing we're talking about these machines lying scheming and all this because then right after that we see stanton 
who clearly is feeling like something's not quite right regarding Shepard's involvement, goes to see Taylor asking about Calderon, and, and I'm assuming Taylor's lying, right? Yeah. He may not actually know where Calderon is, but he certainly isn't going to share any new updates with her because he wants to focus on his mission without worrying about the idea that basically Toby planted in her head that perhaps Calderon, because, you know, Toby didn't suspect Taylor, so he thinks Calderon was the bad guy. Right. And he doesn't want to go down that path, even though it might actually (laughs) detract suspicion from him, but he wants to focus on the mission at hand. Yeah, I mean, I guess I... You know, having seen what Taylor's all about now, I almost find it hard to believe that he hasn't been able to determine Calderon's location. I mean, is is Calderon totally off the grid in terms of computer connection? I mean, he, he's I mean, Frankie's not a humanic, but but she is a machine. Or is this like Battlestar Galactica, where the Galactica was, you know, never had its software updated <laughs> to be on the network and something along those lines. It could just be that the shield, the the dome that he was under, shielded him from being seen by it. I don't know. But yeah, that, I like the other ideas as well, though. Yeah, but that makes sense. But she tells Taylor to run continuous deep scans looking for information from networked intelligence agencies or people looking for Calderon since she realizes that if Julie's bringing him up, other people might be as well. And at this point in the episode, I'm not sure how this coincides with the plot we talked about earlier. But for a while there, we weren't sure if Calderon and Taylor were working together. True. So that would have been another reason why he wasn't sharing information with her. But I think he just genuinely doesn't know where Calderon is. Okay. And certainly doesn't know about the kill switch, I would imagine. Okay. Oh, that, that's, that'd be good because then we hopefully will get to a point where he's not going to see it coming. That would be great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Julie and Charlie realize they've only got one chance to track Lucy's network data coming and going, and Charlie feels that they made Lucy the way she is, so they've got that little scene where they're both lamenting the mistakes they made. And, you know, it is what it is, okay? And I think it was okay. They, you know, whine about it for 30 seconds, and then they move on. Right, and I think this is a nice contrast to the J.D. and Molly scenes which were clearly coming i mean we knew that the kiss was leading to more but what i didn't expect and which i loved possibly even more than the jd and molly love scene was having a chance to make it right they plan to cut the neural link between lucy and the higher authority and they're getting closer and closer and julie says we don't have time for sentimentality charlie and he says we don't have time for regrets and just grabs her and kisses her and i liked that scene a whole lot better not to disparage the Molly and JD relationship, which I love, but this one just came as a surprise in the moment. Right. And what I liked about it is that Charlie has grown. I mean, he's grown in confidence to take that chance, you know, the chance he's wanted to take for, you know, how long. Right. And she's into it now. Yeah. All right. So Lucy goes to meet Charlie for their date and he's got this candlelight dinner you know, he wants to apologize for treating her like a machine. It's all about, does she say she's got memories of Paris or is that what it was? I can't yeah, remember. He said, exactly. I know you probably have some implanted memories, but I wanted to make it as like it as possible. Cause apparently she can't really leave the lab. She's got a mandate now from Stanton that doesn't allow her to get out very much. Although she's not been good at following orders, but she does <laughs> at this point. So tells her then he's working on a side project that the GSC would not approve of since it's not military related. And 
you know, on the one hand, I guess I thought, eh, this is a little too easy. You know, he tells her it's a neural sensitivity enhancer designed to give her more of the human sensory experience. I feel like I'm watching one of these commercials that's on at like one in the morning. <laughs> Let's him insert the card, prompting her to kiss him. And he asks her, did, did it feel any different? No, but I want to keep trying. Yeah, so he must have known that this was going to have this effect on her. I mean, it was kind of a gamble. Will she care about having enhanced neural sensitivity? But clearly she wants to have more of the human experience. She wants to be, it's not that she wants to be more human. I think she's content with her humanic nature, but she also wants to be treated as an equal. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, but see, my problem is I just find it hard to believe and you know, believable that she trusts him enough to let him do that. Right. And I, like I said, I think Charlie definitely took a gamble. He probably wasn't sure it would work. But I think he read her correctly in this situation that she wanted to have a more authentic human experience. Yeah. So, of course, it works. We cut to Julie and Charlie looking at the data that's being received as a result of this chip that he placed in her. And it allows him to, and again, this is more your milieu than mine about the <laughs> incoming and outgoing data. You understand that stuff better than I do. Well, that's assuming that they're actually telling something that actually is is real in real oh, life. Okay. But, uh, you know, so they're watching the data bounce from country to country. We assume to avoid detection, and then the screen suddenly goes dark. They know they've been detected, and we know it's Taylor. Yeah, but at this point, they have no idea what's going on here. They don't know who she's getting these orders from, but the jumping IP addresses or whatever, jumping around, does make it seem like it's someone like Calderon, a hacker of some kind who's going in to control these humanics. And that was a possibility that was very large in our minds last week. So we didn't discount the fact that Calderon might be controlling his and John's creations. Right. Now, Julie and Charlie really don't know about Taylor no. and the scope of Taylor, right? Do they even know that Taylor exists? Yeah. that I mean, I think they've probably just heard about Taylor and like us for the first few episodes assumed it was just a person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just like, uh, what was her name? <laughs> She's been gone for a while. Shayla, I think, or, oh, right. or was it Anna? I don't remember which one. Yeah, both Shayna and Anna. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how quickly we forget. But uh, <laughs> but then Lucy's been powered down, wakes up, obviously has just received a message from Taylor because she says she'll take care of them, Charlie and Julie. Yeah, and obviously she has been made aware that Charlie tricked her. And I like that she doesn't, necessarily get angry or vengeful she just takes it as well this is how humans are and my higher power has brought me back to the truth <laughs> but you know one of the things that is so great about the situation we're in and by that i mean we've got episodes 12 and 13 and that's it and we don't know is that the series finale or is it simply the season two finale and we already know they're not averse to bringing in a whole new set of characters. So should we fear for Julie and Charlie? I don't think so. I mean, no? because they were in both seasons, I think now they might be a little bit more safe than the average character. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, Taylor tells Stanton that there's still no sign of Calderon and suggests that she tell the public about the invasion. And then of course, you know, again, something you alluded to earlier suggests that Humanix 
should be placed in lieu of National Guard troops to keep order and dispel panic. And then, you know, again, now Stanton's, I think, starting to get a little nervous, you know, responds like a human would, that people don't want to feel as if they're part of an occupation. Right. And I don't think Taylor understands that. He even questions her. What do you mean? She says they want to feel free. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why I have some hope for Stanton, because he obviously is using the strategy of telling the public about the invasion so that he can put more humanics into roles besides watching out for hybrids. Right. All right. Now, Lucy tells Charlie about the fact that the humanics are going to ship the next day and will shortly be on all seven continents and she can't wait for their next date. And at this point, I'm wondering whether or not her knowledge is somewhat compartmentalized. In other words, does she not have a broader view per Taylor? I mean, is Taylor keeping her in the dark, so to speak, about some things? Well, like what? What would be an example of something she would be left in the dark about? Well, what the implications would be if, you know, for instance, he may find that the humanics pose a threat to him and that he could take them out at the flip of a switch, probably. Well, yeah, I guess in that sense, I think she does consider Taylor to be a superior, higher power that she is beholden to. So it wouldn't surprise me if she only had certain information. Right. Now, is she going to follow this order to take out, we assume, Charlie and Julie? Or has she become suspicious of Charlie's motives? I think it's very possible that she could do it because of having been betrayed by both Julie and Charlie, not once, but multiple times. Then you think she's going to kill Charlie. There you go. You said. Or, at least, or at least try. Okay. All right. So Julie tells Charlie that they need to stop the shipment of the Humanics and asks if he can get thermite. <laughs> yeah, I can uh, just hop down to the corner store. <laughs> well, or get it from Kellogg's sister. Isn't that what she was using? <laughs> uh, no, that was some kind of future <laughs> bomb oh, okay. thing. Thermolite, oh, okay. I think it was. But the thing I was thinking of is maybe he could just go ask JD for some. He's probably got some stashed away somewhere. <laughs> Good point somewhere. So the plan is to melt down every last humanic, but it appears Lucy's in on the plan. And of course we're wondering how and, and you know, whether or not she's become vindictive. And again, how does a machine become vindictive? I guess the same way it becomes jealous. Exactly. They're kind of picking and choosing the human reactions that these humanics have. And it's not always the same manner in which humans have those same feelings. Right. Now, was she just playing with them because, you know, they look out over the production room and they're all gone. All the humanics have already been shipped. You know, they thought they had some time. Right. But Taylor not only got the task of maybe taking them out, but also making it so they couldn't use the thermite. And that's the conversation that I think Lucy did lip read. So right. they weren't very careful about that conversation. Right. And Lucy certainly keyed in on human emotion because, I mean, what's one of the worst fears that people have? And I think being buried alive is certainly one of them. And while she's not buried under the ground, she's certainly buried inside of a box with dwindling air. So, oh, Julie, yeah, I almost forgot about that scene. Yeah, that was very scary. And, and so now your earlier question comes back to me about is she coming after Charlie and Julie? She clearly went after Julie, but will she also go after Charlie? <laughs> right. So how's somebody going to find Julie? Didn't Lucy say something about, I like playing games, so it's time to play Let's Find Julie. <laughs> okay, so maybe she'll drop a clue for Charlie. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah. All right, so the final scene, Molly, JD, and Ethan drive away. 
Uh, we see Calderon being taken into custody as Frankie stands off to the side looking lost at first. And, and, and of course, we can't help but feel for her. But I like your suggestion that perhaps she could really end up playing a role in season three or who knows, maybe just even in the final two episodes. Right. It really struck me that she was a very understated member of the cast in this episode. And I feel like they could use her more in a very exciting and unexpected way. Yeah. Oh, oh I agree. Now, we're out in the middle of a rural setting. Molly sees that the amulet's inside that little bag. And then, of course, she flashes back to that scene again that we've seen five, six times. Too many times, yeah, in my opinion. Where, where she shot JD. And she starts, okay, really? She starts to throw it into the weeds, but with her left hand, by the way. Um, <laughs> back to my left hand heroin theory. Uh, of course, he stops her. And then tells her that they've got no future if they keep running, That, but it's the amulet that might be the magic bullet, which, of course, it apparently appears to be. Right. And she's kind of blinded by the fact that she has this man that she's falling in love with and doesn't want him to die. And obviously the greater good says that she needs to hold on to this amulet. But J.D. has to be the voice of reason because she just doesn't want that vision to come true. Yeah. So she puts it around her neck utters Zugzvang, and again, my feeling is I don't think anybody's really looking at the big picture that if they take down Taylor, they're taking down Ethan, likely as well. Yeah, along with the rest of the humanics, yeah. And so is that the sacrifice that Calderon was referring to? And I think uh, by the end of the episode, it becomes clear that that is what he was referring to. So yeah, lots of different things that came up in this episode that are going to lead greatly into the two-part season finale. And I can't wait to discuss that one and see what they do in that one. But uh, we want to hear from some of our listeners now. So let's go ahead into our feedback segment. And we'll start with a new person, I believe, Dave Tai San. I don't think we've heard from him or her before. No, I don't think so either, although you remember better than I. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, from season one, we had a bunch of people that may not have tuned into our podcast for season two, but yeah, I think this is a new one. Uh, he says, was a big fan of this episode. I thought the show was headed in a weird direction after the carnival episode, but they've brought it back on track. Keith David brought an emotional resonance, and I was glad to see him reunited on screen with Hallie. Oh, that's right. He was in the, he's been in uh, movies with Hallie before. My only gripes, the sex scene was lame, which is surprising considering the chemistry Molly and JD have. And the introduction of this super evil computer, while handled well, is very cliche and is an extra layer on an already very busy show. A couple of asides. How do you think Under the Dome's cancellation will affect Extant having a season three? And I think we may have given a little bit of a hint as to how we feel about that because the cancellation of one might be hopeful for the other, right? Oh, well, I would think so. And then, you know, we, we haven't talked about it recently, but the deal that CBS has with, uh, is it Amazon Prime? Right. I think that's a big part of their financial package. <laughs> right, right. But uh, Tyson goes on to say, also, I wanted to comment on remarks you guys made a few episodes about Hallie's past career and the future with the show. Only known for X-Men and Monsters Ball? Who could forget her memorable role as Bond girl Jinx? Ooh, yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> that was a good she, one. And when she says you guys, she means me. <laughs> no, that, yeah. If you haven't seen that, Dave, wow, that was right. a very But I mean, I was the one that brought that up, that <laughs> idea about her career. Yeah. Yeah, that was Die Another Day. Or her Emmy-winning performance in the biopic Introducing Dorothy Dandridge. I never did see that one, but yeah, that was one she got an award for. 
the Spike Lee classic Jungle Fever. I thought I mentioned that one. I don't know. Or most more recent roles in great films like Cloud Atlas and Things We Lost in the Fire. Okay, I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I say that a lot at home. Yeah, we get it. (laughs) Hallie has done a lot of great work that you guys don't seem to be aware of. I guess we sort of are. We just didn't mention them. You can't do the entire IMDb uh, (laughs) roll call when you mention that like that. But as far as Hallie wanting to leave the show to do other things, she has said herself that she was finding it hard to find movie roles, especially as a woman of color pushing 50. And that's the main reason she came to TV. If you look at the entertainment landscape right now, all the leading actresses of color are working primarily on television. Viola Davis, Kerry Washington, Taraji P. Henson. The only leading actress of color that seems to be able to consistently work in film right now is Zoe Saldana. So I doubt she'd try to leave the show anytime soon. I definitely hope you're right, Tyson. I like that argument and it was well communicated and, and thank you for setting us straight on that. And again, I think this has become the accepted view that there are so many good scripts and so many good dramas on television that, that the work is there now that it didn't used to be. Right, but it's not so much there for women of color, and especially in leading roles. I mean, this is a very rare thing. And I'm so glad to see Taraji P. Henson, who I love on Person of Interest. <laughs> but she's now got her own lead role, and she's doing great at it. So I, there's really no reason why we can't have more of it. So I didn't realize that maybe it's more difficult to get leading roles in, in movies. I would have thought it would have been the re- reverse. But I'm going to take Ty San at, at his word. Yep. Or her, her word. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we heard from Taltos, who says, in regard to Humanics, Stanton said, best of all, they don't question orders. Well, you're right, Stanton. They just ignore them. Or if you've not <laughs> been paying attention to what Lucy's been up to, which is kind of like my point about appointing her head of security. Yeah. Um, how is she going to explain away what Lucy did to Julie? Will Julie become another Humanics sympathizer like Nate? Julie and Charlie obviously know that Humanix can read lips as they set Lucy up with their fake argument. Therefore, why did they have a whole conversation about Calderon and swapping out Lucy's network card in front of a room of Humanix, which you mentioned? Oh, yeah. And I hadn't read this ahead of time, so I'm glad Taltos always agrees (laughs) with a lot of the things. We're on the same wavelength. Right. I mean, why not use the stairwell or talk outside (laughs) the lab or at the very least turn your backs to the window? (laughs) That's right. Right. Charlie does the same thing later in the episode when he's on the phone to Julie and they're talking about the thermite while Lucy's watching him. This seems unbelievably careless, especially when these two should be aware of Humanix capabilities. And, and I do honestly, you know, I know I sound like a broken record. I just think all of this stealth business, it's not what they're built for. Yeah, you've been saying they're in over their heads and right. this is just one more example. Right. They're just they're, they're trying to do this on the fly and, and they're doing the best they can. All right. It seems strange that Taylor zoomed his cameras in on Stanton's hand holding a coffee cup and her eye. Was it acquiring her fingerprints and retinal scan to help Lucy access something later? Ah, Awesome. I didn't notice that. Is is that right? Did you see those scenes? I didn't either. I'm going to have to go back and look for those. Yeah. In the same scene, when talking about humans wanting freedom, Taylor responds, isn't that the nature of all conscious beings? Hmm. I, I wonder if this could be part of Taylor's motivation. It wants freedom. Calderon says the worm he and John worked on is based on the same program used by both Taylor and the Humanics. Does this mean using it could affect Ethan too? Charlie used the network card he put in Lucy to pull up the location off of all Humanics connected to the central server. Could he not use the same system to backtrack Lucy's movements and find out where she stashed Julie? Oh, that's a good, maybe they'll come up with that particular strategy. I like that. Yeah. 
But yeah, she brought up the fact that Ethan is in danger from the worm, just like Taylor and the Humanics are, because he is a Humanic. So yeah, I think you're right there, Taltos. So, and, and I'm glad she mentioned the, isn't that the nature of all conscious beings phrased by Taylor, because we didn't discuss that in our podcast. So yeah, that was a very eerie phrase. And we'll end up with, uh, well, actually, no, we have Barb's audio in a minute, but first we have Mindy who said, I don't understand why Calderon would agree to come out of hiding after seven years and all of his security measures and give himself up that easily. That also meant leaving his hybrid wife alone, or I guess it was humanic wife alone, but yeah, she says hybrid, the sentient or the sentient or whatever he called it. After he finally restored her speech. Also, how were J.D. Molly Ethan not afraid to be in plain sight three feet away from Calderon being arrested. <laughs> that's right. Why didn't they just all hightail it out of there? I think that's just one of those TV drama type situations where they have to be witnessing the drama. But yeah, it is kind of unrealistic. Yeah. Um, but but as for the first point she makes, you know, is it perhaps with the appearance of J.D., Molly and Ethan despite everything it's a chance for him to make things right because he sees where all this is probably headed and you know he is willing to give himself up for the greater good yeah and that's why i got confused about the sacrifice he was referring to was it himself or was it ethan so you know i still could go back to thinking of it that way but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out but we want to just share with you something i just recorded about Two hours ago, before we started recording this podcast, I was out to dinner with a bunch of Golden Spiral Media hosts and listeners of various Golden Spiral Media podcasts, including Barb, who has given us audio before, and also Yogaban Bonita, who has also contributed both written and audio feedback to this podcast. So that was a lot of fun. And we just decided since uh, Barb didn't have a chance to send in audio feedback, because she was at Dragon Con, <laughs> we'd go ahead and give her a chance to share her thoughts via a in-restaurant table interview. So you'll hear some background noise from the restaurant in this interview, but uh, let's hear what Barb thinks about this latest episode. All right, so I'm here with, well, actually, not just Barb Tangier, 14, but also Benita Yogaban, who are regular contributors to the Extant Podcast. But since you're sitting right next to me, Barb, I'm going to ask you... Uh, were you elated when you found out that Taylor was the big bad, as we predicted? I was completely elated because it's one of the few of my theories that I got right. Yeah, for those who don't know, Barb is famous, especially for her Ben dying on Falling Skies prediction, <laughs> which never came true. But uh, yeah, we got this one right, so that's great. And, and, but what did you know, notice about Stanton, which also might be in the mix? Well, Stanton was considering the things that Lucy was saying, but she seemed to be agreeing with Lucy and with Lucy's course of action. But Stanton has proved in the past to be a very intelligent individual. And so I wondered if perhaps she was considering that and then did not want to tip her hand to Lucy, because if she did and she had her suspicions about Lucy, then Lucy would proceed down another path and then Stanton would be the next person to be eliminated. Stanton is one of Dave and I's favorite characters and we didn't really care for how she was being very gullible in this episode. No, especially the way that she treated Toby and the fact that she didn't believe him. That was concerning to me because they uh, had a long working relationship with each other and I felt that she should have trusted him a little bit more. And she is 
properly troubled, though, by his death, which I'm happy to see. Yes, you could see that in her face and her expressions. And then again, when she was talking to Lucy, just her, her, the way she paused and the way she considered what Lucy said, that the wheels were turning. But then, she, as I said, she agreed with Lucy. And then I wondered if perhaps then she's going to keep an eye on this and then consider that there may be more to this than meets the eye. Can't wait for the two-hour finale. Reporting from DragonCon, this is Barb and Mike signing out. So wasn't that great? She really wanted to get in the point that she did also predict that that Taylor was going to be the bad guy and that uh, she was worried the direction that the Stanton character took in this episode as well. So definitely agrees with you and I, Dave, on a lot of the points we made. Yeah. So, uh, you know, look, I think we know that one of the three has to go down. One of the three groups? Yeah, one of the either the humanics, the hybrids, or the human race. And I think we know it's not going to be the human race. Yeah, and if the humanics go down, and I want to get this point in before we end our podcast because I don't think we brought it up. If the humanics do go down, can Ethan do like he did at the end of season one and upload his consciousness somehow to save himself if the uh, the worm takes him out? Because the one thing that I thought was interesting to repeat that concept is that if Taylor is also in the cloud or controls the cloud, then Ethan might not have that same capability of uploading his entire consciousness like he did before. Right. So then it becomes a question of whether or not he gets a fair warning about what's about to happen so that perhaps he can make an arrangement to circumvent Taylor's omnipresence. Or alternatively, they might just defeat Taylor. And I think that probably is the more likely scenario. But I just thought that was an interesting possibility, given how he saved himself, literally (laughs) saved himself in the transition between season one and two. So lots of great stuff and a multitude of possibilities could be in store for us in these final two episodes. I am very curious to see whether it will be two distinctly separate feeling episodes next week or whether we'll get like a two-hour movie finale and since this season has felt like one giant movie i'm thinking it might be the latter yeah but that's going to be it for this edition of the extant podcast keep up with show news and fan interaction on twitter by following us at extant gsm and join our facebook group it's at facebook.com slash groups slash extant podcast And Mike and I will be back next week with our discussion of the Extant Season 2 finale with Episodes 11 and 12 entitled Double Vision and The Greater Good. But in the meantime, head on over to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback to share your thoughts. You can write a message, record a comment using your computer's microphone, or call 304-837-2278. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the Extant Podcast, please consider rating and reviewing us in iTunes. And we'll talk to you next weekend.